Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your guest host for today, Martha Buskirk, Professor of Art History and Criticism at Montserrat College of Art. Today I'll be speaking with an individual who is probably familiar to most listeners, Ryan L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law, and author of an ever-expanding corpus of scholarship dealing with copyright and adjacent issues. I was hoping we might start out by talking a little bit about your background, and specifically what I'm understanding as Brian Fry Act One, your 1997 MFA degree from the San Francisco Art Institute, and the engagement with film that followed, both as a creator and as a critic. Great. Well, Martha, thanks so much for interviewing me for the show. It's really uh, a great pleasure to talk to you. Uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of of your work, and it's a real honor to to have you asking me questions about my own work and, and scholarship. Um, in relation to your question, it's right. You know, I mean, I I kind of started my uh, kind of professional trajectory, such as such as it is. Um, as as an undergraduate uh, at UC Berkeley studying film and philosophy, and then went to the San Francisco Art Institute to do uh, an MFA in in filmmaking, uh, primarily focused on uh, American experimental film, and I was studying there with filmmakers like Ernie Gear. Uh, George Kuchar, whose research assistant I was many times, um, Doug Hall, a pretty well-known video and and performance artist, um, and and a bunch of other people at, at the Art Institute. And so I, I made a bunch of films, mostly on uh, 16 millimeter Super 8 and, and other formats when I was there, and then uh, moved to New York after after I graduated. Initially, in order to do, um, uh, I was going to pursue a PhD in cinema studies at NYU, uh, but that turned out not to be um, really to my taste. Um, and so I was in the program for a little while, but then ultimately left the program. I quit, basically. I stopped doing it. It was not what I wanted to be doing. Um, and really, the only reason I ever went there was because I was a huge fan of Annette Michelson's and um, I really wanted to learn from her, which was amazing. Actually, she was a, a, a giant and and a genius and someone I deeply admired and was terrified of, like all of my all of my classmates. I still remember uh, the first time I took a seminar class with Annette Michelson. I had to keep my hands on the table because they were shaking so much um, that I was terrified she would see how nervous I was when, uh, <laughs> when I tried to respond to anything that she said. Anyway, so I was in I was in New York um, doing that program, um, and uh, and I was also at the same time uh, volunteering at Anthology Film. Archive. So one of the other reasons I went to New York was that I was a huge admirer of Jonas Mekas, a filmmaker and founder of Anthology Film Archives. And I really, really wanted to be sort of participating in that. And I was also uh, volunteering and later working at the Filmmakers Co-op uh, distribution organization. 
organization, a film distribution organization in, in New York city. Um, and, uh, and so I was making movies, I was showing movies, I was, uh, working at the museum of modern art, helping, uh, then film creator, Yuta Jensen and my former professor, um, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Anker, who were uh, putting together a program at MoMA called Big as Life. It was a retrospective of eight millimeter films at the Museum of Modern Art. They brought me on kind of as like a sort of consultant to help them um, think about how to most effectively present small gauge films at, at the Museum of Modern Art, sort of help the projectionists there uh, better understand the sort of peculiarities of small gauge film, which, which they weren't used to. So that was, that was a really fun, big, um, cool opportunity, uh, for me. And then I went on to start, uh, with my friend Bradley Eros, a, uh, a weekly experimental film screening series, uh, called the Robert Beck Memorial Cinema, which, uh, we presented in a storefront theater on, uh, Ludlow street in the Lower East Side for about four years. Every Tuesday night, I did a program. So we did, you know, several hundred um, uh, film screenings uh, and they were all, you know, $5, but really pay what you wish. Uh, screenings, primarily uh, experimental film, although it was it was pretty broad in terms of in terms of the coverage. And it was a great opportunity because, you know, so many people are coming through New York City all the time showing films, but, uh, weirdly, no one ever wants to show anything except what's brand new. Right. So basically the, the model that we settled on was that we basically told everyone like, look, anytime you come to New York city, uh, you can come to a show with us and you can show all the films that you made like last year. Right. That maybe everyone didn't already have a chance to see, because of course, you know, it's like a one-time screening and that's it. Everyone wants the premiere. And we were like, well, what we're really interested in is, is seeing and experiencing and appreciating the films. And so, um, and so like, just come and share your work and what you care about with our audience. I ran that for a long time. Uh, I also wrote for film comments, cineast, senses of cinema, um, other other film publications um and then at a certain point uh i i kind of felt like i needed to sort of do something different with myself and um it's a kind of a complicated and i don't really i can't i'm not sure i can fully articulate why but uh i decided that what would make sense for me would be to go to to law school um, and I think a lot of people were really, were really surprised by that. Um, and I, I in, interestingly, actually, um, when I started law school in 2002, that was actually the same year that, uh, my work was in the 2002 Whitney Biennial. Um, so there was kind of this funny, uh, coincidence of the two things. And, and, and I guess that's kind of been that that weird kind of crossover has always been the case because a decade later, um, I made the documentary film R Nixon with, uh, with Penny Lane and that movie premiered, uh, at a, a, a basically the same time as I started my tenure track job at, at the university of Kentucky. So it's always been kind of this funny intersection of art making 
and uh, and law thinking, I guess. So yes, I was recently I picked up the um, October one hundred year. Uh, issue on obsolescence for some reason and came across your name. I hadn't uh, had hadn't picked up on that connection beforehand. So obviously you managed to get into the same uh, same dialogue with Annette Michelson again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I stayed in touch with Annette Michelson over the years. I mean, not all that. I mean, we weren't like super close or anything, but she was always someone I admired a lot, and. Um, and actually, my friend Lewis Recoder, who I knew from UC Berkeley, and who also went to the San Francisco Art Institute with me, he's he and his his partner uh, Sandra Gibson are a film installation artists. Um, he's working on a book project about Annette Michelson, and I just gave him an abstract uh, for for the book project. So fingers crossed, I'm going to be writing about uh, Annette Michelson's work on Harry Smith's uh, film, Heaven and Earth Magic, thinking about it through the lens of uh, kind of uh, Gnostic theology. So um, picking up on the, the decision to go to law school, I guess I'm curious to hear a little bit more about Act Two, uh, the decision to go to law school, and also perhaps uh, the decision to zero in on copyright as a particular area. Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting thing. So, I, I, I mean, it hadn't occurred to me to think about that until um, my girlfriend at the time was talking about going to law school. And I wanted to be supportive and helpful um, and started sort of looking at what that would mean and that, what that would require and then realized that, oh, this is actually pretty interesting and I like this and maybe this is something I want to pursue uh, as well. Among other things, I came across um, the Harvard Law School suggested summer reading list and actually bought a bunch of books off of it and read them. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is fantastic. I love this stuff. And this is kind of something I'm, I'm interested in. Um, and so I ended up kind of just pursuing that, even though uh, ultimately uh, she decided otherwise, and that, that relationship didn't, didn't continue. Um, but, you know, she's very nice and we're, we're still friends. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, yeah, it was like one of these things where it, it, it didn't occur to me t- until it did. And then it just seemed like it made an awful lot of sense and was very consistent with sort of um, kind of bigger picture interests I had about thinking about ideas. And it was like a, a, a an academic opportunity that felt more consistent or um, it felt more, uh, it felt closer to ways that I wanted to be thinking about problems. And, and and I guess the other thing I would say is like, I couldn't have articulated this at the time, but in retrospect, I do think it was relevant that I realized that there was like a real lack of legal knowledge in the artistic communities that I participated in and a lack of access to that kind of knowledge, right? Like a lot of people had problems, but they didn't have anyone they could ask about it and they didn't know where to go to ask someone about it. Um, and, and it was, so it was really scary for a lot of people because they just didn't know, you know, like what to do when a legal problem arose and they didn't know how to answer really basic 
legal questions, and they didn't know even who to ask how to answer those questions. So I think I think part of it for me was realizing that like this is something that I can do, and it's a service that I can provide. And so one really rewarding thing for me as an attorney and as a law professor has been to be able to be in a position to kind of be the go-to person for a lot of people in that community when they have legal problems. I mean, the reality is that like, I'm still the only lawyer who most kind of people in the kind of experimental art film community know. And anytime a problem comes up, um, for better or for worse, I'm the one who gets the call or the email or the Facebook message or whatever. So I hear from someone almost every week, you know, asking questions about, you know, what should I do about, uh, in many cases, it's, you know, what should I do about this intellectual property related issue? Um, but often it's organizational questions, right? Like how should we think about managing this institution? You know, what are our legal duties as board members, right? What do we have to do in order to apply for tax exempt status? What do we have to do in order to, you know, create a charitable corporation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, like if I weren't there to help, I'm not sure who who would be stepping in uh, in otherwise. Might be getting a few more of those calls after this interview airs. So sort of thinking along those lines, I I want to turn in a, in a few minutes perhaps to some of your creative uses of the law recently. But thinking more along the lines of advocacy, one of one area that's that's obviously very important to art historians is the area of fair use. And in your uh, image reproduction rights, in a nutshell, for art historians, you suggested that university presses should band together on fair use and take out pooled insurance to protect themselves. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the background for that, and also whether you are engaged in any kind of further advocacy around that. Yeah, yeah, and and you asked about copyright earlier. So the fu the funny thing for me is that like I I didn't actually even take a copyright or intellectual property class when I was in law school. I focused on totally different things and sort of happened into scholarship in this area um, much later in my academic career. And in some ways, I kind of feel like that was healthy for me because I was thinking in different directions and then could sort of self-educate about the areas that, that I'm working in, in now. Um, but when it comes to image reproduction rights and copyright related questions, when it comes to art, art historians, frankly, that was really informed by my own experience in the documentary film community um, where fair use has, in large part for kind of historically contingent reasons become a really important uh, wedge for shifting the way that people think about licensing and ownership uh, in relation to motion picture works. Um, so there's sort of this unique um, situation when it comes to motion pictures, which is that there's always been a tradition of, of insurance uh, for, uh, for films that has enabled uh, distributors to, um, to, to, to basically buy the rights to distribute them without having to worry about any risks associated with potential 
infringement, right? So in, in the absence of this, this kind of insurance, right? Distributors, when they send around a movie, if it turns out the movie is in, has infringing elements or has some sort of liability problem attached to it, that could be like def- defamation related issues as well. Um, the filmmaker would be liable, right? But in many cases, filmmakers are judgment proof. And so that's not going to, that, that, that's not going to be appealing for the potential plaintiff, but the distributor would be liable too. And they don't want that kind of liability. They want to avoid that kind of liability. And so this uh, body of insurance called errors and omissions insurance developed a long time ago. And essentially what that does is enable filmmakers to buy a policy from an insurance company where the insurance company says, if there's any kind of problems associated with this movie, any kind of liability issues, then we will, um, we, you know, we'll, we'll cover, we'll provide an insurance policy to cover any of those uh, liability risks. And that enables uh, distributors to not have to worry about liability for those kinds of issues. Well, you know, historically that was primarily focused on things like like defamation or potential tort liability associated with the production, et cetera, et cetera. But in, I think it was the late nineties, early two thousands, um, a, a group of attorneys prominently including, uh, Michael Donaldson, uh, uh an LA based, uh, motion picture attorney realized that, that, you know, insurance could be used to enable documentary filmmakers to use fair use more, more aggressively, right? So historically in the eighties and nineties, there, you know, it was very rare for, for documentary filmmakers to make fair use claims. And, um, most people kind of felt contextually like they were obligated to license any kind of archival material that they were using in, in a film. And, um, and that was despite the fact that, you know, a literal reading of the, you know, section 107, the, the fair use kind of codified fair use provision in the Copyright Act, it makes it pretty clear that certain kinds of uses are and should be seen as permissible without licensing. Um, so what they did was go to insurers and say, hey, we've got really solid legal arguments that certain kinds of uses are not infringing and therefore don't require licensing. Um, why don't you underwrite these risks, right? Why don't you provide an insurance policy that covers these, these kinds of risks? And, um, and the insurance companies thought about it for a while and they looked at the litigation history and ultimately came to the conclusion that the risk for them was was really low, right? That litigation was unlikely and that if there was litigation, they were likely to win. And peculiarly, because uh, unlike uh, the typical situation uh, where the American rule uh, of, of attorney's fees says that both parties pay their own fees, when it comes to copyright uh, infringement cases, there's actually sort of like a, a relatively strong likelihood of fee shifting, right? So not only could the insurance companies underwrite at low risk, have a high likelihood of winning, but when they won, they could largely expect to get their own attorney's fees paid for. So this is a very attractive proposition 
to to the insurance companies who started writing these policies uh, for for filmmakers saying that, well, you know, if you if you come to us and say, well, I've used archival material, uh, but I've used it in a way that's protected by fair use. And here's an attorney who reviewed it and agrees with me that my use is consistent with fair use. I want you to write me an insurance policy and say that you'll provide insurance on the off chance that anyone uh, goes and, and sues me. And the insurance companies love it, right? Because it's basically a license to print money for them. Nobody's, nobody's going to sue documentary filmmakers who are engaging in fair use because the copyright owners know they're going to lose, right? So they, they can't bring the action, right? The filmmakers have to buy the insurance because the distributors won't pick up, or won't pay for the movie. They won't, they won't sign a contract without it. So they've, got, they've basically got a market situation where they have a bunch of people paying them for a product that's, you know, purely there in order to grease the wheels of a financial transaction. And they can be very confident to a very high degree that they're never actually going to have to pay out on any of these policies. And that, that's, a, that's a beautiful business model. Right. <laughs> I mean, as an insurer, what do you want more than insureds who are never actually going to be making a claim? That, that's a that's a beautiful market right there. Occasionally, there are lawsuits and, you know, insurers have to represent people, but they have enough like safeguards in the way that even when they do have to do that, they usually get paid back on the back end. So this is like this is a huge cash cow for them. And it turned out to be really profitable and and really attractive. Well, I mean, I, I think something really similar is available in other areas, it's just we don't have that historical, um, you know, that, that we don't have the historical accident of already having the kind of tradition and expectation of insurance already in place. Like the big difference in the film business was that everyone was already buying, already expected, already required to buy errors and emissions insurance. And it was just a question of tweaking the policy to make it accomplish a slightly different goal. The problem is in other areas like book publishing, there isn't the same tradition of, you know, insurance in part because we've sort of ironically, I guess, in part because um, publishing has, has internalized fair use values in ways that other areas haven't, but just doesn't admit it to itself. Right. So what I like to always say to my students is like you, you read any, scholarly work, it's full of quotations from various other sources. Every one of those quotations is a fair use. We just don't think about it that way, right? When you quote something from another source, you're literally reproducing original elements of somebody else's copyrighted work in your own work. That's a prima facie copyright infringement. And really theoretically, the only basis for saying it's protected is fair use. We just don't call it a fair use, right? And there's no difference between quoting a book and using an image conceptually when when it comes to fair use, right? If you're talking about a painting, um, there's no reason you can't include an image of that painting in the book in order to help readers better understand what it is that you're talking about. I mean, like that's literally the purpose of, of fair use is to ensure that that people producing works of authorship can, can use the materials that they need to in order to comment on, criticize, and provide scholarly information 
about the works they're discussing. That, that's, that's why fair use exists in the first place. And, and, and there's really no reason not to think about it that way. And ironically, again, the only reason we, we don't have that is a kind of historical accident in, in the sense that book publishers just didn't develop with the same sort of uh, institutional and uh, insurance-based business framework for thinking about what they were doing. So, I mean, in the paper, I suggest that, you know, maybe publishers should adopt a similar kind of E&O insurance policy. An alternative way, and maybe a better way, would be for them to just say, you know, we're not going to put up with it anymore. If you come to us and threaten us with, um, with, with litigation, we're just going to tell you to go pound sand. And we'll defend ourselves because the reality is that they banded together and just said, we'll collectively fund uh, like a litigation fund or something like that. They would win every time. And the precedent is 100% on the publisher's side for using images uh, in, in scholarly works. I mean, like there's cases directly on point saying that this is clearly a fair use. They're just too spineless to really pursue it. And I have to say that that having just cleared image rights for a book where I argue extensively uh, in favor of fair use, reading that that part of your your essay was really inspiring. And I I I know that there are some there is some dialogue happening among the presses in this direction, and so that's why I was wanting to ask you a little bit about this because I'm I'm really hoping that perhaps they might might take inspiration from that idea because I. I I hadn't seen it articulated exactly that way before. Mm, well, that's great to hear. I mean, I thought your book was fantastic, and I'm uh, I'm 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 currently working on a uh, review of it, which will be very positive because I thought it was an excellent book and very illuminating. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, and like I said, I think there are multiple ways that they could approach it. I mean, one way would be to go down this insurance route, which I suggest. In the article, only because there's already a model out there for that. But I, I, I also think like something simpler, even like a collective kind of uh, defense war chest or something could could be almost as effective and maybe more effective and less expensive, right? Because the the real point here is that you know the reason insurance arises in the first place is that there's like differential risk tolerance, right? So filmmakers have low risk tolerance because they don't have the asset. They know they don't have the assets to defend themselves if there's a problem. And insurance companies are there to help them sort of mitigate the risk that they can't afford to take on. And I think much of the same is the true in the, in the case of publishers, right? Where it's like, they just have low risk tolerance and they, they want to avoid the potential for, for litigation. And, and, you know, the easiest way for them currently to avoid the risk of litigation is just to avoid doing anything that could potentially get them sued, even when what they want to do is actually something they're, they're permitted to do and something where they would win if they had to litigate, they just don't have the resources to defend themselves or they're worried about having the resources to defend themselves. But if the resources were there, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be insurance. It could just be like an agreement among publishers that will kind of collectively fund 
um, whatever litigation takes place, or even just kind of preemptively finding pro bono counsel who say, we'll defend you if somebody sues you. I'm, there's a bunch of lawyers, so I'm sure I'd be delighted to do that, you know, because it'd be a fun case and it would be easy to win. And you could probably get attorney's fees because the, the infringement claims would be so bad. Um, so, you know, I just think there's a lot of opportunity. It's just, it's just hard to get, in my experience, it's hard to get academic presses to the place where they feel comfortable doing something that feels new to them. One of the things I've been struck by as I've looked at both art historical and legal scholarship is the frequent lack of comprehension in both directions, including what many in the arts think the law says and practices governed by art world conventions. You've written about these issues, but lately it seems like you've increasingly taken on these mismatched expectations as a prompt for creative interventions. So maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the, the, the playful provocation of some of your recent writing and associated activities. Yeah, well, so I'll start by answering in a somewhat oblique way that struck me from some of the comments that you made on the essay that I wrote about image reproduction rights, because I, it reminded me how differently art historians and artists think about the nature of artwork and the work itself from the way the law thinks about the nature of artwork and, and the work itself, right? So among other things, um, you flagged the fact that I sort of was very um, medium unspecific when it came to the way that I talked about the nature of what was being reproduced. And I remember that, right, from being uh, an art history student, from being uh, a student in art school, from being someone who was in a cinema studies program. You know, we, we thought really hard about, like, the nature of the medium and how a change from one medium to another was really fundamental to the experience of the work itself. But that's just not how copyright thinks about works of authorship. For better or for worse, right? It's totally abstract, right? It thinks of works of authorship as, as intangible expressions with no particular attachment to any medium whatsoever. Um, which for me was like really like sh kind of quite surprising and hard to wrap my head around when I started law school and when I started doing uh, intellectual property related scholarship and sort of figuring out how to square those two things and make sense of what it is that copyright thinks it's doing as opposed to what artists and authors think they're doing is I think a really interesting and difficult project. One that, uh, and I, I should really mention her name, uh, Jessica Silby uh, has done really fantastic work on, on that front, kind of thinking about how creators actually experience the law and how it affects them or how it structures the way they think about, about what they're doing. Um, so like, I mean, for me, those kinds of contradictions are something that I think about a lot in terms of what I'm doing as, as a scholar. Um, and the big shift for me in the last couple of years is I've, I've kind of come to see myself as a different kind of scholar 
than I originally realized. So uh, for many years, I saw myself as uh, fundamentally uh, a legal scholar writing about art-related issues. Um, But I've really come to reorient my conception of what I'm doing to think of myself as a conceptual artist using legal scholarship as a medium for the creation of conceptual art. Um, And it's been quite liberating in terms of thinking about what you can do with scholarship, right? Or to kind of put a Austinian spin on it, you know, how to do things with, with legal scholarship as it were. Right. I mean, so the idea is like, how can you use the form of legal scholarship to accomplish something different and new in ways that legal scholarship didn't always anticipate. And there's a few different legal scholars out there who I think have done really interesting work on the same front. Um, I would put a flag on, in particular, Pierre Schlag, who's done some really interesting kind of meta legal scholarship, thinking about what it means to express uh, ideas about genre and meaning in the format of legal scholarship. And the, also um, Ixta Maya Marie at uh, Loyola LA, who um, incorporates similar kinds of very uh, creative and uh, unusual approaches to uh, the format Like she comes up with all of her own genres of legal scholarship to write different papers. So both of them were really kind of formative and inspirational to me in terms of what I wanted to see my own legal scholarship, conceptual art practice doing in the future. And honestly, I'm still kind of figuring it out as, as I go. So, um, so I, I'm actually taking, I I have a current paper I'm working on that takes a page from, uh, one of my favorite writers, Raymond Roussel. Um, so I'm writing a paper called, uh, how I wrote certain of my articles, which will be a reflection on, um, on the sort of the creative process that led me to, uh, to where I am in thinking about the kind of scholarship that I'm doing. So you have written about plagiarism, but lately you have been intervening in the the notion of plagiarism in some very different ways. And I guess I, you know, you said about your illegitimacy of plagiarism norms to the new batch uh, in your preamble. You said I found it especially amusing that the essay bot rephrased plagiarism as writing. I would like I would like you to swear to me that you didn't do that substitution yourself. I did not. It was actually purely the algorithm. So I've I've got a, I've 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 been really interested in plagiarism for and the concept of plagiarism and how we think about or um, sort of rationalize our regulation of plagiarism for for a long time. I like to joke that I'm the the leading legal scholar advocate of plagiarism, which is really easy because I'm the only one. Um, so it's first in, first in a field of one. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, I did a paper a while back called Illegitimacy of Plagiarism Norms, where I asked um, an, an essay mill to write a paper for me arguing that plagiarism norms were illegitimate and found it immensely amusing when they produced a paper for me. An essay mill wrote a paper for me that to the best that I can understand that it was a pretty hard paper to read because it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But to the best that like I can understand what they were talking about, the paper actually argued that plagiarism was bad. So like even the essay mill couldn't believe that I would want 
them to make as outrageous an argument as I was asking them to, to make. Um, and uh, I recently found a, uh, a service called Essay Bot, which automatically produces essays. Um, unfortunately, they're, they're not very good, um, but they are words in order. Um, and, uh, and so what it does is it basically, if you give it a prompt, it goes through the internet and finds uh, different papers from different sources that kind of line up with the keywords that you're using. So I, uh, I, I put in the title illegitimacy of plagiarism norms to the, the new batch and then use that as the prompt to auto generate an essay, which it then, um, para, like auto paraphrased for me in order to avoid, uh, plagiarism detectors. And yeah, like you say, it was very amusingly, it, it's, it's paraphrase word for plagiarism was writing, which I found deeply amusing and kind of profound in, in its own weird, weird way. Um, and like, so like, I mean, this for me, like, you know, one thing that's interesting about these kinds of projects is that, um, I don't think most legal scholarship venues know what to do with them. Right. Because they kind of sort of take the form of legal scholarship, but they aren't really legal scholarship in a traditional sense. And I think that they're very, so like one of my favorite things to do is I I really enjoy submitting papers to SSRN and then asking SSRN to categorize them for me. Like, like what kind of scholarship do you think this is? Right. Um, And to see where they end up sending it, if they end up sending it anywhere. Um, That said, I do feel like um, openness to this kind of um, genre shifting form of legal scholarship has is beca- at least becoming somewhat more um acceptable so like uh I, I, some recent papers have actually went ahead and like gotten ex- public publication acceptance from uh from various journals um i recently got i, I wrote a um a paper a little while ago called a paper uh called deodand um, which is basically an homage to Yoko Ono's grapefruit. So it's um, primarily a series of conceptual uh, uh, art descriptions um, that uh, that sort of reflect on the process and nature of legal scholarship. And uh, Seattle University Larvi loved it, and they offered to publish it. So um, I'm hoping that that's a sign that uh, that legal scholarship is going to become more open and more willing to sort of reflect on on its own form and nature and genre. So perhaps as a final question, I could ask you to talk a little bit about your SEC no action request and then how that took you from conceptual art certificates into the NFT zone. Yeah. So this is what I'm actually working on right now. I was writing about this last night and I'm still trying to wrap, wrap my head around it. Um, so I did a paper a while ago, uh, which I actually style as a, a prospectus for the sale of a work of conceptual art. And uh, so the work is called SEC No Action Letter Request. And the work of conceptual art is the act of sending a SEC No Action Letter Request asking the SEC to opine 
on whether selling a work of conceptual art titled SEC No Action Letter Request is the sale of an unregistered security. Um, and in the article, I argue to the SEC why it is the uh, sale of an unregistered security. So um, a friend of mine joked that this actually should be called the SEC Action Letter Request, like a please regulate me letter. Um, so I did, in fact, send an SE, uh, no action letter request to the SEC in order to realize the work of conceptual art. Um, I also sent certificates uh, of ownership to anyone who asked for one. I did not sell them because I didn't want to be in violation of the securities laws. Um, but I did send um, uh, 200 of 50 uh, it was an edition of 50, but I, I created 200 editions to ensure the maximum likelihood. Like I wanted to make sure to dilute the issue. Um, I also uh, provided an opportunity for people to sell the work on the secondary market and also to act as brokers on my behalf to sell the work to third parties, again, in order to maximize the likelihood that the work would be seen as a unregistered Security. Uh, unfortunately, the SEC uh, has not responded to my no action relative request, and they also have not responded to my FOIA request asking for any documents relating to their decision-making process in relation to my no action letter request. So I'm in the process of currently appealing uh, the SEC's decision um, to see if I can get them to cough anything up. Interestingly, in addition, I also uh, tried to register the work of conceptual art SEC no action letter request with the copyright office. And I sent them the paper uh, pointing out that the paper was merely describing the work and was not in fact the work that I was registering. Um, the Copyright Office refused to register the work itself, but did register the paper, which I explicitly asked it not to, to do. Um, so uh, again, that was kind of a fun um, opportunity to think about the nature of, of, of conceptual art. Um, and in part, this was a, a reaction to some work that my friend Guy Rube at OSU has done on thinking about conceptual art in relation to, to copyright protection. Um, so unbeknownst to basically I put that paper out there, the SEC no action letter request, and it ended up getting picked up by Matt Levine at Bloomberg, uh, among other people who started talking about this idea of like, you know, is conceptual art or can conceptual art be a security? And, um, and their reaction was, well, no, this is nuts that, can't possibly be right. And, you know, not everything's security, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the reaction I, I typically got from securities law colleagues when I described the project to them was more bafflement than anything else, right? So when I told Biff Campbell, my colleague at University of Kentucky, a former securities lawyer and securities uh, scholar, about the project, his response was, well, why would anyone buy something like that? That doesn't make any sense, right? And I was like, trust me, they buy things like that. <laughs> Right. But basically, the, the general reaction to the project was this is a silly provocation that doesn't actually mean anything because this is not real. Right. Well, six months later, you know, cue the NFT. And all of a sudden, it turns out it's totally real. Right. It's totally real. And for some reason, people are willing to spend huge amounts of money for. Who knows what? I, mean, I talked to a reporter the other day, and they 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 were baffled. Right? We don't we want to write about NFTs, uh, but we don't understand it. What's happening? And I said, 
I have no idea, but I love it. <laughs> right? I have no idea what's happening, but it's amazing and weird and something is happening and I don't know what it is and we haven't figured it out yet. And the funniest thing to me about the NFT phenomenon is that the people doing it don't seem to understand what's happening. I mean, they think that there's something about an NFT that in some way has something to do with art in the traditional sense, but it's just not true. All they're doing is buying and selling unique tokens, and they're just saying it's associated with things. But the association is totally ephemeral and meaningless. It doesn't have to be there. There's no reason for it. So I created an NFT as well called a SEC No Action Letter Request 2, um, in which uh, the NFT, uh, in which I sell an NFT in the idea of selling a work of conceptual art called SEC No Action Letter Request 2 the NFT, explicitly saying it's not associated with anything. All you're buying is the idea, just the idea, no, nothing but the, the idea. Trying to underscore the point that that's all you're ever doing. When it, the, the NFT is just the NFT, it doesn't matter what it's associated with. And people get all, they're, they're all people out there getting all upset, right? When somebody says, oh, you know, this NFT is associated with like works from this museum or this NFT is associated with a particular celebrity. It's like, it's just meaningless. It doesn't, you, you can say it's connected to anything you want to, and it doesn't matter, right? Because there isn't actually any connection. When you buy the NFT, you're not buying anything except access to a particular chunk of data. That's it, right? It's like, for me, it's like the most liberal, you know, it's what's beautiful about it, I think, is that it has the potential to liberate art from money entirely. Right. And to point out to people that when we do the art market, what we're really doing is transactions and nothing but transactions. And the art is the part that's not captured in the financial transaction. The art is like whatever that weird experience is that 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 can't be captured in in dollars and cents. Or like I like to say my, my kind of go to phrase here is um, art is a consumption good that consumers don't understand. Right. They understand the dollars and cents. They understand an NFT in a way, right? Because it's money, right? But what they don't understand is what makes it beautiful. But you don't think that the NFT market then just essentially is reflects the worst aspect of the art world in the sense of the art world being the contemporary art world being so focused on market and uh, market market values then being prioritized over discussions of other other qualities i guess i'm agnostic worst best i mean depends on what you like right i mean different strokes for different folks it's it's just an aspect of the art market i don't personally find it a particularly interesting one but a lot of people seem to and that's okay if they like the money then let them pursue the money right the point for me is that it sort of highlights in this really um, in this really stark way, right? The chasm between the money part and the art part and forces us to really reckon with what we what we're doing when we do an art market and what we're talking about when we talk about art. And and I think that that's really interesting. And I hope that 
the conversation trends in that direction. It hasn't gotten there yet. Uh, the, the main thing that I've been disappointed in in the NFT discourse is the extent to which people don't seem to understand what it means. They don't want to under. I, yeah, they don't want to understand what it means. I don't think. And I think if they thought a little bit harder about it, they'd find it a lot more troubling, but also a lot more interesting. Well, thank you. The most wanted music. Shut him down on his dark star shine. 